from the Carter Subaru Studios. This is Cairo Nights with Jake Scorheim. Welcome back to Cairo Nights. I am your host, Jake Scorheim. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you guys for hanging out. If you missed the first two hours of the show, shame, deep shame on you. Uh, go back and get the podcast. Cairo Nights with Jake Scorheim. Look it up wherever you can get your podcast. You're going to enjoy it. We post a lot of great stuff there. We're going to start posting, inter- actually, we've already started this. We're posting extra interviews there. So not just the stuff you hear on the show, but extra stuff. It's bonus content stuff on the podcast. So if you subscribe to the podcast, you just automatically get that stuff sent right to your phone. And we've had a lot of good response to it. So uh, check it out if you get a chance. All right, let's get right to it. We have some crazy stories to jump into. This one I did not expect. This is not, not a story I expected to be talking about. But guess what's back? It's not great news. The bubonic, 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 how do you pronounce that? Bubonic, the first case of bubonic plague since 2015 has hit the Pacific Northwest and it's all thanks to a cat. First case of the human bubonic plague in Oregon since 2015 has been confirmed. This is in a MyNorthwest.com uh, article. You can see it there. If you're worried about it, you can uh, you can get all the information you need there. Although, spoiler alert, health officials don't think you need to be worried about it. But listen to the story. First case of human bubonic plague in Oregon since 2015 has been confirmed by health officials who claim the person likely got it from their pet cat. Ugh. That's why I'm a dog person. I actually don't have any pets right now. I guess you could most most accurately say the most recent pet we had in the house was a fish. And that fish lasted about a week, about seven days. That's the length of time that we have fish in our house. We have not had great success keeping fish. I don't know what it is. My kids, maybe they just stare at it too much. Maybe they're putting stuff in the water that I don't know about. Fish just don't last long in the Scoreheim house. In fact, when we get fish, we just pour them right in the toilet. And we just let them swim around in there until they're dead. Then we flush them. Less cleaning. It just works out better for us. That's a joke, of course. All right. So um, the Deschutes County health officials were able to confirm a cat as a source because the feline was also showing symptoms of the disease. According to the Center for Disease Control, CDC, as you guys might know it, patients develop fever, headache, chills, and one or more swollen, painful lymph nodes when inflicted with the plague. Uh, symptoms start occurring between two and eight days after initial contact. Yikes, I don't like any of this. It makes my skin crawl. The CDC stated an infected flea bite is the most common way to contract this disease. It's one of three plagues of the, C- of the CDC tracks, uh, with the other two being um, pneumonic and septicemic plague. Um, pet cats in particular are highly susceptible. Again, this is from uh, uh, my Northwest. Pet cats are highly susceptible to plague. If not contracted from a flea bite, another common way cats get the plague is through contact with an infected rodent before passing it on to humans. Gross. Isn't that how the Black Plague spread around Europe? Like, have you guys ever looked into that? It was all rats. Like, it's all rats running around the city in the medieval times, and people are just dying left and right because these horrible little rats... And it was what was riding the rats, right? It was the ticks on the rats. You guys should uh, uh, look into that. It's disgusting. You don't want to, you actually don't look too much into it. It's not that fun. Uh, All close contact of the resident and their pet have been contacted and provided medication to prevent the illness. Deschutes County Health Officer Dr. Richard Fawcett said in a statement, 
health officials don't think the public is in danger. So that's nice. So you don't have to worry about the bubonic plague. And the victim's close contacts have already been given medication. The last known case of the bubonic plague in Washington was reported in 1984 when a trapper got sick after skinning a bobcat. Naturally, the U.S. averages about seven human plague cases a year according to the CDC. So it's not a huge number. People don't need to be really that worried about it. Although as parents, we do tend to get worried when our kids get sicknesses and things like this. Also, just anybody getting sick like this is a big deal. You don't want this. My son, a few years ago, uh, he's climbing around in our backyard. Uh, at the time, we had an apple tree in the backyard. And just like, I don't know, it's like an old apple tree. And favorite place to go, obviously, you know, little boys love climbing trees. Little girls too, I'm sure. I just don't have any girls, so I can't tell you that if they do or not. But my sons certainly love to climb a tree if they get a chance. And so uh, they're climbing the tree, and uh, he's. I, and this was just dumb luck, honestly. This is just stupid luck that this worked out this way. But my wife had just given my son a haircut. Summertime, she, you know, just high and tight, cut his hair the day before he's climbing in this tree. Otherwise, we would not have known it because at the time he had like really long, you know, like when they're really young, parents let their kids' hair grow, you know, grow way out and can look crazy, especially in summertime. But for whatever reason, she decided to cut his hair. So she cuts his hair. The next day he's climbing in this tree. And when he comes out, and I don't even know if this is like parenting instinct. I don't even, like, I'm always like rustling my kids' hair when they walk by. I'm like, hey, a scamp or whatever. For whatever reason, on this particular day, and I just like maybe this was just God who just put this in my head, like, oh, you should check his scalp. Weird thing to do because they're always in trees, they're always in bushes, they're always rolling around the grass. They're just like they're little animals outside playing. My kids, not the animals. They're just outside, like like little animals, like puppies outside. And so, for whatever reason, on this day, I'm like a like like monkeys or something. You, like you know, see monkeys like picking the fleas off of each other. I did, I like looked at his hair. I'm like, let me look at that hair. What do you think I found? A tiny little tick on his scalp. And now I'm freaking out because I'm like, oh my gosh, Lyme disease or whatever ticks give you. And I didn't know what to do. And so, and I knew that you're not supposed, like I knew at the time you're not supposed to, because my instinct is like, ah, oh, squish it. You know, like if my kids call me and say, dad, there's a spider in the house because I'm the resident spider killer in the house. If they say, there's a spider. I just go and I squash that spider. If I can get it and I can move it outside, sometimes I like to do that. But if it's a really big one, I have this protective instinct. And I just want to kill that spider for being in my house. Because that spider, how dare it come into my house and hunt my family? It's not going to happen. I kill that spider. That's what I do every single time. So when I see this tick, this little thing on my sweet little baby's head, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to kill this thing and squish it. But then my wife, she goes, no, 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 you're not supposed to do that because you can take whatever the tick has. And because they're like latched onto their skin and they're actually like burrowing into the scalp at the time, you can squish that uh, tick stuff down into their uh, head or what. I don't know how it works. Like, I don't know how ticks work. And so she's like, you got it. Um, and then I, you know, I'd seen like lighters. You're supposed to get them off with heat. And I'm, like, I'm not going to hold a lighter to my kid's head. That's ridiculous. So what we ended up doing was we took some hot water. And we, uh, we dipped a, uh, a pair of tweezers in there with, with uh, hot water. And then we took the hot tweezers and we tried to pull it off. And apparently, I don't even know if that's the right way to do it. We, we ended up pulling the tick off. But I think what, we, what they were worried then, then I, also here's another thing. If you get ticks, if your kid gets a tick, don't throw it away. You save the tick. I didn't realize this. Save the ticks. Just like if you're bitten, like we were talking about the show the other day. If somebody gets bitten by a rodent, 
and you have the rodent or it gets bitten by a, you know, an animal that could possibly have rabies and you have the animal, save it because then they can test that animal and find out if that animal has rabies. And if it doesn't, then you don't need to get those crazy rabies shots. Uh, but in this case with the tick, what they were worried about is all sorts of different things. And because I didn't save the tick, which I didn't know I was supposed to do because I didn't save the tick, they had to test him for all these different things. And then you're just sitting there waiting and worried, but it would have been nice if we had the tick, because if we had the tick, then we wouldn't known and it wouldn't have been a problem. As it turns out, he was fine. The types of tick that cause Lyme disease are very commonly found uh, in this like very specific type of like high grass that grows next to, um, I mean, they're in all sorts of different areas, but uh, they're like uh, on certain types of deer and they're on certain types of grass. Neither of those my son encountered when he was climbing on this, uh, in this old apple tree. So he probably, he was fine. He was, we probably didn't even need to take him to the hospital, but I think it's a good idea if you find a tick in your kid's head to get it dealt with. All right. So, uh, bubonic plague, you don't have to worry about it according to the CDC, but there is a case of it. So be aware of that. And, uh, if you want to be a little freaked out, there you go. You're welcome. All right, let's move on. Another story here. This one was uh, kind of an interesting story. Do you guys remember that ironically named pay-up ordinance that the city of Seattle adopted? Seattle City Council put this thing together. Basically, what they were trying to do, what they were attempting to do, and what they were kind of bragging about doing, is they were going to make sure that people who deliver for, you know, like gig workers, people who work for Uber Eats, people who work for uh, DoorDash, um, Instacart, places like that, they would make a lot of money. In the city of Seattle, they wanted to have a guaranteed minimum wage. And so they told these different companies, you're going to have to start paying people this guaranteed minimum wage. And in one of these uh, delivery services, they started touting the fact, they said, yeah, like in the city of Seattle, you're going to be making $26 an hour, which is really good money. What they didn't tell you, though, was that was the optimum amount of pay that you could make if you were fully delivering all hour and you were being like the, having the most success you could possibly have. The problem though, is that once this pay or pay up ordinance hit and once this was adopted and it was, uh, it went into effect in January. So it's very recent. Almost immediately what you saw happen was these companies like DoorDash and Uber Eats and Instacart tacking on these service fees because now they have to pay their drivers more. And so the service fee would cover the extra charges that they have to then pass on to you. So that the companies, the companies are not just going to eat that cost. Now, anybody who's run a business before, they understand this. They know how this, this, they know how this, uh, this is how it works, but governments don't think about this and they don't really care because governments just want to be able to say, Hey, in the city of Seattle, uh, our gig workers make the most of anyone anywhere. But the truth is that those workers are not actually working that much anymore. We did a story, uh, about a week ago when this thing, uh, you know, was, was falling apart some of these gig workers were talking to the different news organizations saying, hey, you know what? On a Sunday, I used to be able to count on a lot of deliveries and I could make my money doing that. I'd, I'd deliver and I made an hourly wage, but I could also get tips and that's how I was making my money. And then once this pay up ordinance went into effect, <whistles> disappears, just goes away, like cuts them in half. So much so that on a Sunday, this one guy was telling, I think it was Cairo 7, he was saying, I don't even deliver on Sundays anymore. And Sundays in downtown Seattle used to be like his busy day. He would spend all day riding around on his bike, making money, but no more. So there's a guy, the reason I'm telling you the story again, the reason I'm uh, coming back to it, there's a guy whose name is Tony Isles. He began delivering for DoorDash and Uber Eats all the way back in 2019. He was living in Los Angeles at the time. And then he moved up to our area and he was 
delivering everything from burgers to burritos to whatever to hungry tech workers and city dwellers. Lisa Brooks has a great story about this. You should check this out. It's on MyNorthwest.com. MyNorthwest.com. Tony was talking about how he used to be making, he used to be able to count on 12, 13, 14 deliveries an hour when it was raining. People didn't want to to go out and get their food. But then this pay-up ordinance hits and everything just kind of goes away. Like overnight, he he knew it just wasn't happening anymore. People were not ordering food the same way. Uh, restaurants are seeing a huge downturn in the amount of people who are willing to order through these services. And because people are less willing to leave their places and their work and their apartments to go get food nowadays, they're just not ordering as much food from these restaurants either. So these restaurants are also hurting because of this. So it's not just the drivers, it's the restaurants, which is a real bummer. So what does Tony do? He's an enterprising young man. He's 30 years old. He went to WSU. And so he started realizing I'm losing all these customers. I'm not making money with Uber Eats. I'm not making money with uh, DoorDash, he says. So he decides to cut out the middleman and start his own company. And that's how TonyDelivers.co was born. Tony decided to start his own delivery service. He says, I'm not making any money on Uber Eats and DoorDash. So I decided to open up shop, cut out the middleman, and help the customers and help myself. And he says, listen, this like service fee that everybody's getting so uh, up in arms about when you go to use Uber Eats or DoorDash or Instacart, instead, he's just charging a $5 flat fee. He's a smaller, he's a smaller company. He's not, uh, he's not beholden to the same things that pay up, uh, makes some of these bigger companies pay. So he's able to do it for cheaper because he's a smaller outfit. That makes total sense. I mean, this is like, this is how boutique industries work. They can operate and they can make a nice uh, wage because they are catering to a smaller number of customers. And those customers in turn are happy to pay this smaller business, this boutique business, because they still get the services that they want, but maybe they feel good because they're not using a giant company. Maybe they, maybe just, they just like the personal touch. We're going to talk to Tony in just a little bit. I thought it would be interesting to get him on the show. I want to hear about why he decided to do this. I want to hear about if the business is working, like, can he sustain this? Is it going to grow? Uh, I love when people step outside and try things. I really, really, I admire people who take risks. I admire people who decide they're, they're going to take their own, uh, take their own future in their own hands or whatever the saying is, and just go out there and try to conquer the world. So we're going to talk to Tony just a little bit. So stick around for that. All right. Uh, finally, this was kind of odd. I just think this is kind of a little bit, a little bit of a political thing. Do you guys know who Joe Scarborough is? He hosts a show called uh, Morning Joe. So President Biden recently, there was all these headlines about this special counsel report that came out. And it was published by this guy named Robert Hur, who was a special counsel who's investigating Biden for a few different things. And when the results of the special counsel report came out, they said some not great things about Biden. Listen to this. It said, Mr. Biden's memory was significantly limited both during his recorded interviews with the ghostwriter in 2017, with whom he shared classified materials, and in his interview with our office in 2023, adding that among the things Biden struggled to remember was the date of his son Bo's death. Uh, it says, in his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended. If it was 2013, when did I stop being vice president? Uh, and forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began. Her noted also he did not remember even within several years when his son Bo died. Now, this is obviously a very big issue. And people are talking about Biden's age. They're talking about, you know, how healthy is he uh, mentally. He's running for re-election. If he is elected and he's able to survive through his second presidency, because age is a real issue, 
he would be 86 when his second term ends, which is a very old president of the United States. So Joe Scarborough, he is a he's a Biden fan, I guess. And he was defending Biden, but he's defending him in a very odd way. And he's basically saying we all get old and I can attest to this myself. The idea that he can't remember when his son died, which most parents I think would be able to remember unless they would admit that they are having some cognitive issues. Most parents would remember, sadly, if they lost a child. Certainly with certainly the year when they lost a child, I would think. But Joe Scarborough says, listen, that's just like happens all the time. People forget loved ones' deaths and the year that they died all the time. Joe Scarborough tells his own story of forgetting his own mother's death. You 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 had the whole political world come to a stop. First of all, because for some reason you had the guy, uh, the special counsel asking, Hey, um, what uh what year did did your son die? And supposedly he didn't remember what year his son died. And, and this was the most damning thing. I said this yesterday, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just older people. We've, we've lived a busy and active life, but nobody's closer to me. Nobody's been closer to me in my lifetime than my mom. If somebody asked me in the middle of the deposition, what year did your mom die? I go, I don't know, 2017, 2018, 2019. I don't know. I can tell you everything about it. I can tell you my final word, but, but, but again, that and same thing with Mika and her dad. So the fact, first of all, that he was asking that question. So Joe, Joe Scarborough says that he wouldn't remember when his own mom died, which I find strange because he's a 60 year old man. I would think that he would remember when his own mom died. And then he kind of throws his own wife, Mika Brzezinski, who co-hosts the show with him. He says, eh, she wouldn't remember when her dad died. That's just like, you know, people don't remember those types of things. He also said that uh, the Trump folks are jumping on this. And of course, they're saying now that the White House is like an old person's home. And that's not nice. Secondly, uh, that somehow that's the most damning thing. And the Trump people are now saying the White House is like an old folks home. Uh, it's just I, I wanted to play you that clip because it gave me the opportunity to play this funny video. Somebody recently made this. It was on uh, making the rounds on various websites. And somebody did set up like a parody video. And it was called White House Senior Living. I thought this was very funny. So enjoy. At White House Senior Living, our residents feel right at home. Our vibrant facility offers delightful activities and outings, round-the-clock professional care, and exquisite house-made meals. Well, I've been eating everything that's put in front of me, but I've been eating all, all Italian food, basically. And ice cream. And ice cream, chocolate chip ice cream. White House Senior Living, where residents feel like presidents. I love that. <laughs> Uh, well, residents feel like presidents. That's very nice. All right, so that's Joe Scarborough. I think he remembers when his mom passed away, I would guess. I would hope for his sake that he would remember when his own mom passed away. If indeed she's the closest person that's ever been in his life, which he says there at the start. Come on, you remember when your mom passed, Joe. All right, we got a lot more coming up on the show. You're not going to want to miss a second of it. Next, we're going to talk with that guy. His name is Tony Isles. He started his own company. He couldn't make money on Uber Eats. He couldn't make money on uh, DoorDash anymore because of this pay-up ordinance in Seattle. And so he decided, I'm going to do it myself. We're going to talk to Tony, see how that's going. Stick around. We're going to be right back here on Kyra Nights. You're listening to Cairo Nights with Jake Skorheim. 
Welcome back to Cairo Nights. All right, you guys remember a couple weeks back, we were talking about that new ordinance from the Seattle City Council, that pay-up ordinance. Essentially what it was doing was it was saying that in the city of Seattle, they want gig workers to make a certain amount of money. They were going to require some of these delivery services to pay them a certain amount of money. The problem with that, though, was that that higher cost per driver was just going to be sent down to you. Every time you ordered food, there was going to be a surcharge tacked on because of this pay-up ordinance. And then we find out that drivers aren't getting orders anymore. People aren't ordering food the same way just as they were just a month ago. And so there's a guy whose name is Tony Isles. He decided to do something about it. He started his own business delivering food. Tony joins us now. Tony, thank you so much for coming on the show and making the time. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Tony, maybe we can start with this ordinance from the Seattle City Council, this pay-up ordinance. When this ordinance went into effect and people started seeing these extra charges on their bills, did you notice pretty quickly that people were not ordering the same amount of food? Oh, I mean, that goes without saying. Yeah, of course. You can just walk downtown to your local Chipotle and see how many orders at lunchtime are there versus what it was a year ago. You, you would notice it. So you decided to start your own thing. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how's it going? My buddy and my other buddy, they like were kind of in tangent here. They were like, what if you just cut out the middleman? And then, you know, my buddy was in India and he like, his girlfriend was like, well, what if there was just a guy? And I was like, oh, okay, well. Let me just plug myself in there, you know, and uh, I, I know like, guy. I'm a guy. I can yeah, do it. Exactly. I, you know, I can be, I can be who, who, the guy you need, you know, um, at your service. And I think I was speaking to my buddy Dave who owns a restaurant in uh, the international district. And, you know, he was talking about like, you know, how challenging the fees are for, for restaurants. And, uh, you know, th- those fees eventually just end up going to, you know, the customer. It's, it's hard. It's hard, especially right now. I mean, eggs are expensive. It's so, I mean, well, you no, how much eggs expensive. Are right now? Eggs F- are expensive. Food's expensive. Taxes are expensive. It's very difficult to make money in the restaurant industry, which is why we always find ourselves falling in love with a restaurant or someplace to eat. And then you come back a month later and it's been closed. And you're like, oh, geez, especially after pandemic, like it's just very difficult to make money in the food industry. So things like this yeah. do not help for sure. Yeah, it's been hard for a lot of people. Especially recently. So you started Tony Delivers and you were just talking with your friend and you said, yeah, I could just be. So, so why is your, why is your system so simple and why does your system work in a way that Uber Eats does not work? Well, I would say the reason why my system will work is because, uh, if you see me and I come to you, it's a different experience, right? Right. I mean, even right now I'm speaking to you, it's just a different experience. There's kind of like this sort of lively energy. I, I'm curious. I'm also kind of curious about what you think and what, how you feel. And, and that, you know, is also exemplified in the way that I deliver your food, right? Like me delivering your Chipotle is not just me delivering your Chipotle. It's me bringing your hard earned dollars and your, your food to you as like, I care about, you know, the end result of like, it's going into your stomach. And, you know, basically, you're making life decisions on that on that basis. And, and I care, you know, I'm just, you know, and I think a lot of Uber drivers and DoorDash drivers that are working, they struggle with, you know, they're struggling on their own to make ends meet. And, you know, they don't get this, they're not like talking to anybody. And they end up just saying, Oh, this is just somebody's food. I don't even know them. Yeah, I don't care about them. Yeah, you're never going to see them again. Or if you are, it's just gonna be a quick but, knock on the door and you walk away. Yeah, what? exactly. But you know me. Well, what's nice right, is like, what, what you're describing is you have basically set up a boutique business. You have said, hey, I want to make it more personal. Uh, I don't want to just be this faceless, just a, a piece of a tech. I want to be a guy that people go, oh, yeah, I'll call Tony. Tony will bring my burrito. And he'll... Exactly. Yeah. And so... And, and, and if you're having a bad day, you know, if you're, if <laughs> call you're Tony. like... I'll, exactly. I'll, you know, I'll come over, give, I'll bring your burrito over and, and you'll be like, oh, man, it's a Tuesday. And I'm like, well, you know, 
know, how do you feel today? And you're like, you explain and you can get into it. And, and, you know, we can have a conversation. It can be like a thing. A lot of people don't remember. And I, you know, I'm not old enough to remember, but there was a time where people would have conversations with the people that worked at the grocery store. Maybe your butcher that cut your meat or whatever, wherever you were going, you would have those conversations and it would, it would have a different feel. And I think that's something that's kind of missing here in the equation. Um, You're adding a personal touch. Yes. Yeah, a little bit of a little bit of tone in there, huh? Just so, a little bit. So, so people can pay. It's a what is it? A, it? The other thing that I think is probably attractive for people is they get their food delivered, and it's just five dollar flat fee. Is that right? Just no matter what you're ordering, just five dollar flat fee. Exactly. Uh, it's just five dollars flat fee. You're inside that map. I come to your location, bring it to you. Bada bing, bada boom, five bucks. It's, it's not like uh, I'm not going to be like you know. I understand that you're going through maybe a hard time in your life right now, especially financially. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be like, Hey man, you know, I gotta, I gotta ask you for a tip. It's not about that. It's just about me kind of coming to you as like a personable experience and, and, and you seeing that. But you are making money at this, which is great. I mean, you can't run a business if you can't make money and how many, how many deliveries on, let's say you're doing on like a good hour. How many deliveries do you think you can, you can do inside your circle? Oh, that's tough. Uh, I, I'm just going to say I'm doing well. Enough to keep growing the business. Are you hiring more people? Is this something that if, if people are interested in this, could they could they go find you at Tony? Is it what is it? TonyDelivers.com? Isn't that your website? Yeah, they could they could come find me. We'll we'll, we'll see what happens if there's if uh, you know if, if we get to that point, we we can continue the conversation. I mean. We got this far, so <laughs> I'm hoping I to, guess here's my, to here, bring it to the next level. Yeah, here's my question. What is the next level? So like DoorDash. DoorDash is a great example. And they probably started out with a much smaller number than they are now, but then they eventually got giant. They got huge. And, and so now you're filling that hole, that personal touch that maybe people don't, you know, that are kind of, they're longing for now. And, you know, are you are you hoping to grow the business? Maybe not to DoorDash size, but what's your, what's your goal here? I'm hoping to, you know, to grow it to something that could be sustainable and, and something that could have a positive impact inside of you know people's lives but i don't know i i I can't really i really don't know how far that is going to be but i got some homies and my homies feel i feel i i trust my guys (laughs) behind me and they trust me so we'll see what happens you know it's true it's what's cool to me is that you saw a need and you said hey i can do this i can make it work and because of your small size right it's just you like if somebody calls tony tony delivers they're going to get you you're talking to me right now but you will be talking to them if they order your food Exactly. And if it's not, you know, just like every business, if it's not profitable and it has to go under, it is what it is, right? Like it's, that's life. You, you, you know, you're living and you're learning as it's going. And obviously, um, it's not, once again, like I said, it's, it's a, it's a hard industry to, to, to get it, to catch a break in because there's so much competition, but maybe the competition just needs to look a little bit different. Well, Tony, uh, if anyone wants to check you out, they can find you at TonyDelivers.co. All right. Thanks, Tony. Thank Appreciate it, man. Take care. See you next time. You know what's really great about this story? I love the idea that somebody who was a gig worker, who was a delivery driver for, I think he was a driver for Uber Eats and also DoorDash, and he was kind of making it work. And then the city steps in and says, hey, we're going to have this pay-up ordinance, and it's going to be great press for us to be able to talk about it. What they didn't talk about, though, is how it basically has shut down this industry. And yes, there's still delivery drivers out there, but there are far fewer. Trust me, I'm getting tons of text messages from listeners who used to do this. This was a good, like a legitimate side hustle that people could count on making extra money. And now it is so much harder for them to do. But you take a guy like Tony and he says, you know what? I'm not going to let Seattle determine how successful I'm going to be. I'm just going to start my own thing. And it sounds like he's doing pretty good. So we wish him well. Good luck, Tony. We'll keep up to date on him and see how he's doing. All right. We got a lot more coming up on the show. Stick around. We're going to be right back here on Cairo Nights.
You're listening to Cairo Nights with Jake Scoreheim. Welcome back to Cairo Nights. It's the final segment of the night. I wanted to play you guys some audio from the show the other day. Actually, it relates to a story that I just saw. Uh, CBS put out this report. Basically, the Super Bowl was watched by everyone. Everyone was so excited about it. This is the biggest Super Bowl they've ever had. Listen to this. They had 120 million viewers who watched on CBS. The largest audience ever for a single network. Um, the most streamed Super Bowl ever led to record-setting audience on Paramount Plus, which is where I watched it. Um, CBS Sports coverage of Super Bowl LVIII, which I still don't know what those Roman numerals means, featured the Kansas City Chiefs in a 25 to 22 overtime victory of the 49ers. Uh, this is all from the CBS press release. They said that the uh, telecast was the most watched in history, with a total audience of 123.4 million average viewers across all platforms. Um, they said that uh, more than 200 million viewers watched all or part of the Super Bowl across various networks, the highest unduplicated total audience in history, up by 10% versus last year's Super Bowl, uh, which was watched uh, totally by whatever the number was, 180 million or something. But the Super Bowl has come a long way. And we were actually talking about this on the show last week. I was talking to Dave Wyman, and he just had this great story. We were just talking about a lot of fun stuff. If you didn't get a chance to hear it, go back and listen to that somewhere last week on the podcast. But we were talking to Dave Wyman about a few different things. We're talking about um, somebody not flushing in the urinals here in the building, which doesn't really pertain to the audience as a whole, but Dave and I found very entertaining. We were also talking about uh, coyote bites. We were talking about rabies and... Dave dropped this little bit of knowledge on me about the first Super Bowl that ever happened. Very humble beginnings all the way back in, what was this, 1960-something. Uh, Dave has a story. It's very interesting. You know what? Super Bowl history, if you watch the very first Super Bowl, have you ever looked at the highlights? It's the Packers and the Chiefs, I think. No. Oh, it's it's fantastic. Is first it, of is all, it black and white? Uh, no, it's in color, but okay. like they have all these hokey things. First of all, it's at the LA Coliseum, and it's like 30% full. And then everyone's like, what is this? Like, yeah. What is this, what is this Super Bowl? I don't know thing. if this thing's going to take. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> I don't know exactly. if it's going to work. Yeah. And for a while there in like the 70s, they used to have up with people. You ever heard of that group? No. It was like, I don't know if they were religious <laughs> or what, but it was like a big singing group that would sing like happy, positive songs and the they'd all be dressed alike. Are they like and, the Hare Krishnas? Or are they, are they, uh, they're not no, bald, right? Not so much that. No, okay. no. But um, yeah, it was, it was just strange. And then. You know, and then you would have like bands perform at halftime. And then, and really quick, the story in Super Bowl One was that it was Green Bay. There was a starting um, uh, starting receiver who got injured or he was sick the day of, or he got injured in the game, I think. And there's a guy, now I'm blank, Max McGee. So he was a, a backup receiver and he okay. was never going to get out on the field because they had like three he's receivers. Yeah. Yeah. He's a backup and they didn't run a bunch of multi wide receiver schemes or anything. There was like three wide receivers on the team. And so uh, he went out the night before and was smoking and drinking and reportedly got in at like six in the morning. Because he's just having a great time. Oh, yeah. He's, he's just like, I yeah. don't know what this Super Bowl thing is, but I'm going to go and have, <laughs> have some fun. He went to all these parties. He rolls in at like six o'clock. He probably was actually working his other job because back then yeah, they all had, they like had five to. jobs. Yeah, but he, you know, he rolls in, gets a couple hours of sleep, and then he ends up catching the ball like eight times for 137 yards, two touchdowns, Whoa! and he was hung over. The whole time? Yeah. And he just had like a phenomenal game? Well, let's see. Having I've never never done that, but 
like it would probably take a quarter to work it out of you. Yeah. And then you'd be you'd be okay. That's crazy. So the first Super Bowl was thirty percent attended yeah. and was serenaded by a Christian rock band. I the NFL has come bad. a long way. Yes, it has. <laughs> it has. I love Dave. I just uh, anytime he's on the show, I just get such a fun uh, charge from him. He's fantastic. Check his show at the uh, Wyman and Bob Show over there on Seven Ten Seattle Sports. All right, uh, I did go back just for you guys because I try to. I just try to do what all all I can for you guys. Just try to deliver it here. Make sure you guys are well rounded on everything. I went back and I looked at the first Super Bowl, and I got some audio from it. Check it out. On January 15, 1967, on a bright, clear day in the Los Angeles Coliseum, the big question which had troubled the football world for seven years was answered. For the first time, the Green Bay Packers, champions of the National Football League, played the Kansas City Chiefs, the best team in the American Football League. The game was the first concrete evidence of the merger of the two leagues, and it was played for the highest stakes ever, $15,000 per man for the winning players. The Super Bowl was seen by the largest sports audience in the history of television. 65 million people watching the broadcast on two networks. How funny is that? So, first Super Bowl, sparsely attended by fans, but they still get 60-something million people watching just because there was nothing back there. I think they only had three networks back in the day. Um, all right. That's it for the show. I hope you guys had a great time. We had so much fun bringing this to you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Download the podcast, Kyra Nights with Jake Scorheim, and we have a great show coming up tomorrow, so you're not going to want to miss that. But for tonight, night-night. 